All right, well, tonight is a little bit of a unique service. Uh, We're not only observing the Lord's Table, uh, which as a church, we observe uh, the second Sunday of each month. Uh, I believe the Lord has left that up to the church to decide um, how often. I know there's churches that observe it every Sunday. Uh, We observe it once a month. There's churches that observe it quarterly. And I've even heard of churches that observe it once a year. So, again, it's kind of just across the board. Uh, when uh, churches observe the Lord's Supper, uh, believers' baptism. Again, that's another issue that is before us tonight. So let's go ahead. Let's just uh, pause right now. Let's have a word of prayer and ask for the Lord's blessing uh, upon the sermon tonight. And then we're going to be dealing with the topic of the ordinances of the local church, the ordinances of uh, the local church. So let's pray, and then we'll proceed from there. Father, we do come before you, Lord, just with grateful hearts. And uh, Lord, we are such a privileged people tonight, God, just to be able to come into your throne and, and Lord, just boldly uh, come into the throne of grace, Father, and, and Lord, just approach you, God, in a way that uh, believers in the Old Testament, God, were, were unable to come. And God, I pray, Lord, that as believers in Jesus Christ, God, that we would uh, never take for granted, Lord, the privileges we have in Jesus Christ. God, I pray for your blessing upon this sermon tonight. I know this can be a a controversial uh, topic, Lord. There's many different opinions and different ideas about baptism and also the Lord's Supper. And God, we ask, Lord, for clarity from your word regarding these issues. And Lord, I pray, God, you would give us hearts to understand and, Lord, to receive the truth of your word. Lord, what matters is not our opinion. What matters is, is what you have said within your word. And God, I pray, Lord, you would help us, Lord, to have fruitful or just receptive hearts and to be fruitful hearers tonight. And God, I pray you just give me clarity, Father, in my thoughts and my words and help me, Lord, just to preach. Lord, with your power resting upon me. And Lord, may you be honored um, in all that is said tonight. And I do pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, like I said, tonight is a unique night because we have just finished up a sermon uh, going through the book of James. And again, if you want to go back and listen to any of those, those have been uploaded uh, on our church website. We use two primary apps to, uh, again, send out our messages. One is Spotify. The other is Apple Podcasts. The reason we do that is because a lot of people, uh, you know, use those use those apps. And also, number two, they're free. All right. So, again, it's a way we can save money as a church. Uh, so if you're interested in going back and listening to any of those previous sermons through the book of James, I would highly encourage you to do so. You know, James is one of my favorite books in the Bible to both read and also to preach through as well. And it's, it's always bittersweet to end a series uh, just because I'm going to miss it. And it probably won't be years you know, down the road till we touch, until uh, we preach through James again. We'll see. And there's a whole lot of other books we'll get to before that. And uh, another book of the Bible, I'm planning on going to the Old Testament and preaching. I, I won't reveal uh, what book yet, but again, a, a book that is probably common. Uh, a book that you would be familiar with that I want to preach through beginning on Sunday nights. Um, and I could have started tonight, uh, but it didn't make sense to do an introduction and then wait three to four weeks before a preaching again from that year. So uh, tonight was kind of a, a wild card night. So I figured, you know, this is a topic that is important to do it. This is a topic that, uh, again, we want to make sure we have biblical understanding and clarity about. Uh, God's word is very clear about these issues. Uh, I understand there, there may be some finer points of application uh, where, again, there can be 
uh, where you can agree to disagree or where you can uh, you know, have an honest debate about. But again, the, the overall teaching about the Lord's Supper and baptism is very clear within the word of God. What matters is not, you know, is not uh, men's opinions. What matters is what the word of God says. So uh, let's go back to the Bible. Let's see what the Bible says about these issues. And I would encourage you to take notes tonight. All right. Again, if that helps you, if that's a distraction, don't take notes. Go back and let's do it again. Uh, but if it helps you, I would highly encourage you because there's a lot of good notes up here tonight. Uh, we're going to deal with the, we're going to touch on a lot of things. Now, this isn't an exhaustive study of these two issues. Um, why? Because, I mean, we could probably spend a couple of weeks on both of these issues. Uh, so I'm going I'm to kind of give you a bird's eye view, an overview of of the ordinances of the church, not deal with every nuance and application and question that could arise regarding these. If you have questions, you can ask me after the service or at another time. Um, but I, I do want to kind of give a brief overview regarding these ordinances. Now, as a church, again, we hold to the teaching that there are two scriptural ordinances. Again, that is pretty common. You know, that is uh, you know, especially amongst Baptist churches and or Bible churches or you know most conservative churches would hold to um, two ordinances, the Lord's Supper and believers' baptism. And I understand there's some churches that would add some like foot washing in there or you know the, the Roman Catholic Church has its sacraments, which is different than what we teach. An ordinance is different. Um, so that brings up the question: What is an ordinance? What is an ordinance? A couple of things. First of all, the word ordinance comes from two Latin words that mean that which is ordered or commanded. All right. So these ordinances, these teachings, these observances have been commanded or have been ordered by the head of the church. Who is that? Not the pope. All right. The head of the church is Jesus Christ. All right. So Jesus is the head of the church. He calls the shots. It is his institution. And we are called to submit to his word and to follow him as our Lord, as our king, as our savior. Uh, So he has ordered these things. He has commanded these things. I want to give you another definition of an ordinance. An ordinance may be defined as a symbolic act commanded by Jesus to signify that which Christ did to affect salvation from sin. All right, so recognize that. A couple of things. First of all, Lord's Supper and baptism are symbolic. All right, nobody is saved by being baptized. All right, nobody is saved by partaking of the Lord's Supper. You are not infused with grace by partaking of these ordinances. They are symbolic. They're pictures. They send forth messages. They represent things. And what they represent is Jesus and his death and his burial and his resurrection. Again, and there's other points of application we'll make with that in just a little bit. Now, briefly, just real quick, before we move any further, I want to ask or answer the question, who has the authority to administer these ordinances? These are New Testament ordinances. These are these are ordinances within the church age that Jesus has given to the church. And these ordinances are to be administered by and to be done under the authority of the local church, right? the gathered assembly of believers. So with that in mind, let's continue on. Let's take a look at our first uh, ordinance tonight. And again, if, if you miss any of these notes, 
again, I can email them to you. I can send you a PDF and, and give you or, – or do that. You know, take a picture of it. I know, I know in school people would often do that. They would just take pictures of the slides, and I don't know how you would keep that organized, but I guess that works. All right, well, let's continue on, and let's take a look at our first big point tonight, and that is believer's baptism. And there's a reason why I didn't refer to it as just baptism. All right, this is believer's baptism, and I am describing this as a symbol of the believer's union with Christ. It is a symbol of the believer's union, or you could say identification with Jesus Christ. Now, I want to begin just so, so you know um, what our church's official position is on both of these. I just want to read from our statement of faith, and then we'll go from there see what the Word of God says. Um, you know, obviously, we have based this off the Word of God. Uh, but our statement of faith reads like this. It says, we believe that all who trust Christ for salvation are commanded to make public profession of this faith by being baptized by immersion in water. That this baptism is an act of obedience after salvation and has no saving power. And therefore, only those old enough to repent, believe and obey are proper subjects for biblical Baptism. Now, there's a lot in that definition. There's a lot in that description of baptism. So before I get into what is baptism, first of all, I want to identify what baptism is not. All right, what baptism is not. First of all, baptism is not equal to salvation. Okay, baptism is not salvation. They're two separate things. All right. There's this idea, again, there is a teaching that says that in order to become a child of God, you must be baptized. In order to have your sins washed away, you have to be dunked under the water. In order to become a Christian, you must be baptized. But the Bible doesn't teach that. All right, this is an old heresy that originated really from the Roman Catholic Church uh, that has often been referred to as baptismal regeneration. The idea that baptism regenerates us, the idea that baptism washes away our sins, the idea that baptism makes us a Christian, that it regenerates us, or that it, you know, we, are, we are born again through baptism. Yet again, this isn't just exclusive to Roman Catholics. This uh, has even infiltrated many uh, churches that would refer to themselves as Protestant. Consider what the Bible says. I'm not going to go in depth with this tonight. I just want to... Uh, again, like I said, this is just an overview, and uh, if you have questions, I can go deeper if you'd like to. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 says, For by grace are ye saved through, guess what the next word is? It's not baptism, all right? For by grace are ye saved through faith, all right? It is faith in Jesus Christ. Again, that is the hand that reaches out and receives the gift of salvation, it is faith in Jesus Christ, for by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. As you read the word of God, the word of God becomes clear that we are saved by grace alone. We are saved through faith alone, in Christ alone. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Consider what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.17, which, again, is, is interesting. You know, if baptism was required for salvation, Paul says this. He says, For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. 
Now, you would think that if baptism was the gospel or baptism was was required for salvation, that God would have sent Paul to baptize. But Paul says, uh, God didn't send me to baptize. God sent me to preach the gospel. Why? Because the, the gospel, like Romans 1 says, is the power of God and to salvation to who? To everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. As the Jews and Gentiles, how do you receive the gospel? Through belief on Jesus Christ. Through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul was sent to preach the gospel. Uh, The Bible makes it clear that it is not water that washes away our sins. It is the blood of Jesus that washes away our sins. 1 John 1, 7. The latter part of the verse says, The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. Uh, Revelation 1, 5 says, Unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. That sacrifice of Christ, the gospel. The death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ, the shedding of the shedding of his blood is appropriated by faith alone in Christ alone. All right. So baptism is not baptismal regeneration. It is not what saves us. It is not as important as it is. All right. Somebody could be saved and not ever be baptized and they would still die and go to heaven. And I'm not advising that. Again, I think believers should get baptized. Uh, but you think, for example, the thief on the cross. You know, Jesus said, this day, again, you will be with me in paradise. All right, that thief on the cross believed on Jesus, literally on his deathbed. All right, He was on the cross. He was about to die. He didn't have time to get off the cross and be baptized. No, he believed in Christ. He was immediately saved. And Jesus said, today, I will be with you, or you will be with me in paradise. All right, so baptism is not salvation. Number two, baptism is not a means of grace. Again, this is not as serious uh, as baptismal regeneration. uh, But still, again, baptism, what what is grace? Again, grace is the unmerited favor of God. Grace is something you don't deserve. Grace is something you cannot earn. You, you, You don't go through some religious ritual to earn the grace of God. The Bible makes it clear that we don't receive grace through our works, through rituals, through religious things that we do. We receive grace by faith alone in Jesus Christ. And then God, in response to that, grants us his unmerited favor. All right, so we didn't do anything to merit God's grace, including uh, our baptism. So what is baptism? All right, why get baptized is the first big question I want to answer uh, this evening. All right, so why should I get baptized? If baptism is not essential for salvation, then why should a believer get baptized? I think it's pretty clear why a believer should get baptized. Number one, because of the commandment of Jesus Christ. Really, that's that's sufficient uh, you know, reason to get baptized. If, if Jesus told me to get baptized, I need to get baptized. All right, it's, it's an act of obedience. Many people refer to it as the first act of obedience in the Christian life. And I don't understand why a Christian would not want to get baptized, why they would just want to receive the gift of salvation and not obey Jesus by following in believers' baptism. Jesus told his disciples in the Great Commission passage, Matthew 28, he said, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. 
Alright, so this great commission given to the church, given to the disciples, includes a couple of things. It includes, first of all, evangelization. Evangelizing the lost. As the Gospel of Mark says, we are to preach the gospel to every creature. Now, what do we do after they get saved? We baptize them. We baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And then after that, what do we do? Again, the job isn't done. After that, we disciple them. We, we teach them all things that we have been commanded in the word of God. All right, so we can now summarize that by saying you can be a Christian without being baptized, but you cannot be an obedient Christian without being baptized. Like I said, again, I don't know why any believer wouldn't want to get baptized. All right, so the commandment of Jesus Christ, which is sufficient reason to get baptized, number two, is the example of the early church. Take your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 2. And we read this just a little bit ago. And we find here a very important passage in regarding the order of the New Testament church. Or really, you could say even the order of salvation and discipleship. And we find here in Acts 2.41 that those who believed the gospel on the day of Pentecost... The Bible refers to it as receiving the word, that they followed the Lord in baptism. Take a look at Acts 2.41. It says, then they that gladly received his word, that's faith, that's belief. What did they do? They were baptized. All right, so two things there, two separate things. Belief, baptism. What was the natural response of those who believed the gospel? It was to follow the Lord in baptism. Right? It was to be baptized. It was to you know, follow Christ in this area in which he had commanded them through the gospel. So I get baptized uh, because of the command of Christ, because of the example of the early church. So let's continue on. We also want to answer the question, again, who should get baptized? Who should get baptized? Uh, the scripture is very clear about who should get baptized, about who the recipients of, baptize, of baptism should be. And when you look at the Word of God, the Word of God makes it clear that there is one prerequisite for baptism, and that is belief in Jesus Christ. You're not just intellectual belief, heart belief, all right? Faith in Christ, entrusting my soul's salvation to Christ and Christ alone as my Lord and as my Savior. So we find here, first of all, there is a prerequisite, and that is belief on Jesus Christ. We just read in Acts 2.41, they that gladly received his word were baptized. All right, so you have believers getting baptized. Take your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter number 8, verse number 12. And we find here another example of those who believed the gospel and followed in baptism. And you'll never find an example, you know, and, and within, the, within the context of the church, within this church age, again, a people other than believers getting baptized. All right? Baptism in this church age is an ordinance given to the church to perform to those who have believed the gospel. Uh, take a look at verse 12 here in Acts 8. And the Bible says, but when they believed Philip, preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ... They were baptized, both men and women. Then Simon himself believed also, and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and wondered, beholding the miracles and signs which were done. All right, so, so we find here again the gospel is preached by Philip. 
Uh, again, those who heard the word, they believed the message. And what did they do? They were baptized. And again, from all appearances, they were baptized soon after they believed. Uh, jump down to verse number 35 and 36, same chapter here. We find here Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Remember, the Ethiopian eunuch is reading you know, in his scroll a copy of the prophet Isaiah. And Philip comes along. The Spirit of God sends him to this Ethiopian eunuch. And again, he, he comes to this man. This man does not understand what he is reading. Therefore, Philip comes along and he explains the gospel to him. He explains the message of salvation to this uh, Ethiopian eunuch. Take a look at verse 35. It says, Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same time, or at the same scripture, and preached unto him Jesus. Verse 36. And as they went on their way, they came unto a certain water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? Right, so the eunuch says, again, here's water. Why not just baptize me now? What hinders me from getting baptized? Verse number 37. Philip said, if thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. So we find here once again, Philip made it clear that the prerequisite for baptism is belief. Right, it is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and this is one of many reasons why we would reject the, uh, the heresy of infant baptism. All right, infant baptism is, is found nowhere in Scripture. And there are actually people who use the text I preached on this morning you know, to try to justify infant baptism. But nowhere in Scripture do you have an example of an infant being baptized. All right? why, can, why, why can't we baptize infants? Because infants are incapable of making a faith decision for Jesus Christ. They are incapable of believing the gospel. And therefore, they are not qualified to be baptized. The Bible makes it clear that believers' baptism is the only valid form of baptism. Again, I know that that runs contrary to the thinking of, of many religious groups, even in the name of Christianity. Again, But you search the scripture. Don't take my word for it. Search the scriptures. And look for an example of an infant being baptized, and you will not find it. All right? What you will find is believers, those who believe the gospel, following in baptism. All right, so the next question I want to answer is how should we baptize? All right, what is the mode of baptism? Again, this is another area where, you know, we as Baptists, you know, kind of go against the grain. And that is, you know, we believe what we believe scripture teaches, and that is baptism by immersion. Baptism by immersion, single immersion, all right, going under the water, all right, being uh, buried and being raised to walk in newness of life. All right, so the Bible doesn't teach sprinkling. All right, the Bible doesn't teach pouring you know, as, as a means of baptism. The Bible teaches immersion. A couple of reasons for that. First of all, and I think the most simple reason is uh, the Greek word for baptized is baptizo, which literally means to dip or to immerse. So even the word itself, the word baptism or the word baptize literally means it doesn't mean to sprinkle or to pour. It literally means to immerse. All right. To dunk somebody underwater. That's what the that's what uh, the word here means. Secondly, again, why do we believe uh, immersion is the scriptural mode of baptism? Because immersion is the only mode of baptism that displays the message of baptism. 
You know, whenever a believer is baptized, there is a sermon being preached in that baptism. There is a message being published. There is a message being spread abroad through that believer's baptism. They are sending forth a picture of somebody else. And who is that? Jesus Christ. All right, who died, was buried, and rose again from the grave. And it's the same thing with the message of baptism. Baptism is showing our identification as believers with the death, the burial, the resurrection. And the only mode of baptism that pictures that is whenever a person is dunked under the water and they are raised up out of the water. That is picturing the death, burial, and resurrection of uh, Jesus Christ. And the third reason is because we find biblical examples of baptism by immersion. Take your Bibles and turn to Matthew 3.16. Matthew chapter 3, verse number 16. And we find, first of all, that Jesus himself was baptized by immersion. Uh, Matthew 3.16. Give you a second to get there. Remember here, Jesus is coming to John the Baptist uh, to be baptized of him. And take a look at verse number 16. The Bible says, and Jesus, when he was baptized, notice the wording here, went up straightway out of the water. All right, so clearly Jesus was immersed in the water in order for him to come up out of the water. And the Bible says, lo, the heavens were opened unto him. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. Turn to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter number 8. All right, Acts chapter number 8. We're coming back to a section of Scripture we were just in. And this is that uh, passage that is dealing with uh, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Remember the Ethiopian eunuch said, What hinders me to be baptized? You know, Philip says, If you believe with all your heart, you can be baptized. But notice here that after this, again, after the Ethiopian eunuch says, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, take a look at verse 38. The Bible says, And he commanded the chariot to stand still, and they, they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they were come up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord caught away Philip, that the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. All right, so the scripture is clear. There was a going down into the water. There was a coming up out of the water. All right, so there was an immersion within that body of water. All right, so again, we would hold to the position that other modes of baptism cannot be considered scriptural baptism. You know, again, if somebody, you know, was was seeking to uh, join our church and become a member, you know, and again, they had not, first of all, they were saved, we would, we, would, we would deal with that. But secondly, you know, we would make sure that they had been scripturally baptized, you know, by immersion, you know, and again, according to the word of God. And otherwise, we'd ask them to be baptized um, scripturally. All right, so what is the significance of baptism? What is the significance of baptism? Number one, baptism is a picture of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And the mode fits the message. All right, The mode of immersion presents or pictures, again, what baptism is all about. 
Baptism is a symbol. Baptism is a picture. It is a display of the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus. Number two, baptism is a picture of our identification with Jesus Christ. You know, when, when I was baptized, what it pictured was, was when I went down into the water, is it pictured my death to self and my death to sin. When I came up out of the water, it pictures my new life in Jesus Christ. I have been raised to walk in newness of life. And what baptism is, is it is not a washing away of sins, but it is an outward picture of an inward reality. It is showing what happened the moment I believed on Jesus Christ. The moment that I believed the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Bible says I was quickened to life. I was made alive by the Spirit of God. I was spiritually dead. All right, I was dead in my sins. The Spirit of God quickened me to life. The moment I believed the gospel. And there was a death and there was a, there was a life that happened at the same time. There was a death to my old life, and there was a a, a rising to new life. And baptism is symbolic of what happened spiritually when I received spiritual baptism at the moment of salvation. And after that, again, I'm baptized in water, which pictures, again, what happened on the inside. Again, I'm baptized in water, which symbolizes uh, my baptism into Christ whenever I believe the gospel. Number three, baptism is a public testimony of your new life in Jesus Christ. And this is one reason why I don't understand why a believer would not want to get baptized. Because baptism is a way that you are proclaiming to the world that you have a new Lord. You have a new master. You have a new king. You have a savior and his name is Jesus Christ. You are proclaiming to the world that your old life is behind you. You have been given a new life in Jesus Christ. And now you are a follower of Jesus Christ. Again, why would a Christian not want to proclaim that to the world? Again, I think churches should get get back to it. Again, I don't have necessarily have scripture for this, but again, I know, you know over the years many churches have you know, moved baptism inside the church. You know, but why? You know, back in the day, um, I don't think it's unscriptural, you know, for that for churches to do that. But back in the day, you know, where churches would go to baptize, they would go out there. They would go outside. They would go to the river. They would go to the lake. They would, you know, we, we just baptized somebody in a in a water truck, you know, last year. So, but we were outside. We were in public. And it is a public testimony of one's faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a testimony before the world that you are a new creature. You have been raised to walk in newness of life. And the number four, baptism is the door into the local church. Baptism is the door into the local church. The new birth placed you in the body of Christ. All right, that is spiritual baptism. All right, you you were baptized by the Spirit of God into the body of Christ at the moment of belief on Christ. But what water baptism does is it opens the door for again membership within a, a local assembly of believers. Come back to Acts chapter number two. When we find here the order of things, we find that the order is belief and then baptism and then being added to the church. Acts chapter number two, verse number, uh, let's see, verse number forty. Uh, two, actually verse number 41 says, Then they that gladly received his word, that's belief, were baptized, that's number two, and the same day there were added unto them, who's the them? That is that church, 
about 3,000 souls. All right, so there is belief, there is baptism, and there is being added to the church. Let's continue on, though. Again, we could go a whole lot of different directions, but for sake of time, let's go ahead and move on uh, to the next ordinance, and that is the Lord's Supper. And I'm referring to this one, again, as a symbol of the believer's communion with Christ. All right, so baptism is a symbol of the believer's union with Christ, his identification with Christ uh, through belief of the gospel, whereas the Lord's Supper is, is a symbol of the believer's ongoing communion with Jesus Christ, the one who was sacrificed in his place. And as we look at the word of God, we find that the Lord's Supper naturally falls in sequence after a believer's baptism. You see, believer's baptism is a one-time act after salvation that signifies that you belong to Jesus Christ. It signifies that you are now identified with Jesus, again, as your Lord and as your Savior. Whereas the Lord's Supper is an ongoing act, and it is an outward symbol of your continuing communion with Jesus Christ. I want to read our church's uh, official position on this matter here, and then we'll uh, you know, look at some things from there. This is from our statement of faith, and it says this. It says, we believe the Lord's Supper is commanded by the Lord to remind us of his broken body and shed blood to pay for our sins. And to remind us of his promised return, we do not believe that the Lord's Supper has any saving power. The Lord's Supper shall be observed by the church at, at times deemed appropriate by the pastor, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-six. 26. Uh, those who are members in good standing in this church and local churches of like faith and practice, as well as those who are not yet members but who agree substantially in faith and practice, are considered proper communicants of the Lord's Supper by our church. All right, so that's, again, our, our stance. That's our position as a church on the Lord's Supper. Uh, but like baptism, let's consider, first of all, what the Lord's Supper is not. Now, like baptism, the Lord's Supper is not a means of grace. Again, grace is unmerited favor. It is not something you can work for. It is not something you can earn. It, it is a free gift of God's grace. Uh, when you exercise faith in Jesus Christ, you can't uh, earn it or obtain it through religious ceremonies, again, as good as the Lord's Supper is. Secondly, the Lord's Supper is not, uh, don't confuse uh, the Lord's Supper with the Mass. Again, I don't know if anyone has a Roman Catholic background, uh, but what they practice is very, very different. Uh, we would consider unscriptural, you know, very different than what we would practice as a church regarding uh, the Lord's Supper. All right, the Roman Catholic Church believes a doctrine, a big fancy theological word called transubstantiation. All right, I won't ask you to repeat that, uh, but they believe in transubstantiation. And they believe that uh, the, the bread and the juice literally, all right, literally becomes the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. So when you partake of the Eucharist, when you partake of the Mass, you are literally consuming Christ. All right. Uh, again, they, they believe that again every week, again Christ is being reoffered uh, upon again through the sacrifice of, of of the Mass. He's being offered afresh, which is really which is really a denial of the finished work. Of Jesus Christ. Christ's sacrifice is a once for all sacrifice. Uh, we hold to the view uh, that the bread and the fruit of the vine are symbolic. They're not literally the body and blood of Christ. They are symbolic of the blood and the body of Jesus Christ. All right, so let's also consider why, why should we partake of the Lord's Supper? First of all, 
uh, like baptism, because Jesus has commanded it. Right? Jesus has told his church to partake of the Lord's Supper. Uh, that's reason in and of itself. That's reason enough you know, to obey him and to do what he has called us to do. And we'll look at some verses in a little bit uh, about that. But secondly, the Lord's Supper was observed by the early church in the context of uh, the gathered assembly. All right, Acts chapter 2, verses 41 and 42 says, Then they that gladly received his word, all right, so there's belief, second baptism, the same day were added unto them about 3,000 souls. So they were added to the church, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread, there's the Lord's Supper, and in prayers. All right, so we find here the order of Christian discipleship. All right, there's an order to things here, and that order begins with belief, it follows with baptism, it follows with being added to the church, and then it follows with continuance in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers with the, with the church. Um, Acts 20, verse number 7, we see an example here of the disciples gathering on the first day of the week, that is the Lord's Day, that is Sunday, in order to break bread uh, with one another. That is partake of the Lord's Supper. Verse 7 of Acts 20 says, And upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them, ready to depart on the morrow, and continued his speech until midnight. All right, so we find here, a, again, the, the, the gathered disciples, all right, the gathered believers. First uh, Corinthians 11. Again, that we, we find here that the context is, again, this is one of those passages that goes pretty in-depth describing the Lord's Supper for us. And we'll come, back, we'll come back to this text in just a little bit. But there's a phrase that is repeated over and over again in 1 Corinthians 11. And that phrase is, when ye come together. When ye come together. All right, speaking of the gathered assembly. Speaking of what we're doing tonight. You know, a gathering together with believers, and it is in that context, again, that the Apostle Paul, again, clears up the confusion regarding the Lord's table to the church at Corinth. Another question we want to answer is who should participate in the Lord's Supper? Who should participate in the Lord's Supper? First of all, I think, again, any Christian would agree that Scripture is clear that only believers in Jesus should partake of the Lord's Supper. Again, if a person is not saved, if a child is not saved, if somebody is unsure whether they're saved, again, it'd be better just to say, I'm going to wait. You know, I want to get this salvation thing figured out first before I partake of the Lord's Supper, because the Bible warns about partaking of the Lord's Supper unworthily. All right. So, again, an unbeliever should not partake of the Lord's Supper. And again, I believe scripture is very, very clear about that. Now, beyond that, again, this is where some of the big disagreement occurs, even amongst conservative churches. Beyond that, there are three main positions about who should partake of the Lord's Supper, even amongst believers. All right. And again, I'll give you our church's position in just a little bit. But the first position is called open communion, open communion. And open communion says that all professing believers are allowed to partake of the Lord's Supper. That is one view that's uh, uh, becoming an increasingly popular view. And historically, that wasn't necessarily so, but that is becoming an increasingly popular view. At the other end of the spectrum is something called closed communion. Closed communion. And surprisingly, you know, there's still churches that practice this. And again, I know of churches that practice this. And, uh, you know, back in the day, many Baptists, you know, were historically closed 
communions, you know. Uh, but what close communion is, is it says that only members in good standing in that church, uh, by in good standing means they're not under church discipline, all right? So members in that particular congregation that are in good standing are able to partake of the Lord's Supper, all right? Again, there's churches that practice this. And oftentimes, the churches who practice this will have their uh, communion, the Lord's Supper, not in a service like this, but on another weeknight, on a Tuesday night or on a Thursday night. And again, they'll invite members uh, to come out to that. All right. But again, those are not the only two views. There is a kind of a, a middle, a middle of the road, third view. And this is the view we would hold to as a church. And this is called close communion. So not closed, but close communion. Again, I, I, I read in our statement of faith that kind of described what this means. And our position about who should partake of the Lord's Supper within, within our church is, is – uh, can be classified in three different ways. Number one is members of this church who are in good standing. All right? Number two is members of churches of like faith and practice who are in good standing. And number three is non-members uh, who substantially agree with our church in faith and practice. All right? So again, somebody who says, again, I haven't become a member yet. Uh, but again, I agree with your church's faith and practice, you know, substantially, maybe not in every single point, but substantially, I agree uh, with your church in faith and practice. And therefore, you know, we would invite, you know, them to partake the Lord's Supper with us. Here's another big question. And uh, what about baptism? All right, what about baptism? All right, and this, this, is, this is one of those areas where uh, yeah, I've, I've wrestled with this issue myself, you know, and uh, – you know, is it required to be baptized in order to partake of the Lord's table? Let me share a quote with you uh, from one Bible teacher, and he says this, To be saved through faith in Christ is the minimum essential. Baptism logically, he goes on and says, Baptism logically precedes the Lord's table, although no one verse in the word commands this order. The apostles baptized promptly after conversion. So those who come to the Lord's table were already baptized. Furthermore, as union with Christ precedes communion with him, so the symbols of these blessed facts are in that logical order. This is further indicated in Matthew 28, 19, and 20. In the order they're outlined, make disciples, baptize, and then teach them to observe all things Christ commanded. All right, so here's, here's kind of the balance with this issue right here. Right, there is not a clear scriptural precept that says you have to be baptized to partake of communion. But there is a clear scriptural pattern. All right? There is a clear scriptural pattern uh, that I believe, again, shows wisdom or again, that, uh, that, that points to the fact that it is wise for a person to be baptized before partaking of uh, the Lord's Supper. Again, I'm not going to police that or again, I'm not going to. You know, check and see if you've been scripturally baptized. Again, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, again, you, you know, those things we just talked about, again, you would fit into those categories, and we invite you to partake of it with us. Uh, but again, I, I do believe that there is wisdom here because, like I said earlier, you know, you can be saved without being baptized, but you cannot be an obedient Christian without being baptized. So it's one of those issues where the Bible talks about if you come before the Lord's table, come worthily. You know, make sure that your walk with God is what it needs to be. And can you really say your walk with God is what it needs to be? Again, if you're not willing to obey him in the first big commandment after salvation, that is baptism. 
All right, so again, somebody in that position who says, well, I'm a believer, but I've never been baptized. What I would encourage them to do is get baptized. You know, get baptized right away. It may be middle of winter, you know, but hey, people do it. Scandinavian countries, people do it. They, they cut holes in ice and they, they baptize. I'm not saying we'll do that again, but again, if you're if you really want to get baptized, again, we can make that happen. All right, the Bible gives a clear scriptural order of things that we read in Acts chapter number two. And uh, again, I'll go back and read it just, uh, just so you have it fresh on your minds. But Acts chapter number two, we read of that order in the early church. Where the Bible says that they gladly received his word, all right, that is belief in Christ. They were baptized. They were added to them about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfasting the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread. I believe that refers to Lord's Supper. And in prayers. One last thing. One last thing under this question. And that is believers in fellowship with the Lord should partake of the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians chapter number 11. I know there's a lot here tonight, and uh, like I said, I, mean, it's, I hope you're taking notes, all right? So you go back and review this again, or just go back and let's do it again. But 1 Corinthians 11, verses 27 and 28, the Bible gives a very clear warning to the church at Corinth. They, they were not partaking of the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner. And because of that, the Bible says that God's chastening hand was against these Corinthian believers. Many were weak and sickly, and, and, and many slept, all right? meaning that many had even passed away because they were not uh, partaking of the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner. Verse number 27 says, Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. The Bible makes it clear, again, if you come before the Lord's table, you need to examine yourself. You need to examine your life. You need to examine your walk with the Lord. Is there anything between you and your Savior? Is there any unconfessed sin between you and your Savior or between you and another brother or sister in Christ that needs to be resolved? It'd be better to say, I'm not going to partake of communion tonight and say, I'm going to go deal with the sin of my life first. And then next time, again, when I've dealt with that sin, I'm going to come and partake of the Lord's Supper. It would be better to do that. Again, we shouldn't necessarily be, be scared to partake of the Lord's Supper, but we should recognize there's a serious warning. You know, I'll partake of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. Let's continue on, though. What is the significance of the Lord's Supper? What is the significance of the Lord's Supper? First of all, uh, there's, there's four different looks uh, that are found in the Lord's Supper. First of all, there is a backward look. When we partake of the Lord's Supper as a church, we are looking back to Jesus. We are looking back to Calvary. We are looking back to uh, Jesus, again, as our substitute, as the Lamb of God, shedding his blood for us, bearing the wrath of God for our sins upon Calvary. So the Lord's Supper is a memorial. It's not a re-offering of Christ. Right? It, is a, it is a memorial of his once-for-all sacrifice. We recognize that Jesus died, but that he also lives evermore. He's also a risen Savior. It is a reminder of, of, of the forgiveness that we have in Jesus Christ. Uh, take a look at 1 Corinthians 11, verses 24 and 25. The Bible says, and when he had given things, he break it. That is the bread and said, take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. And that is on uh, that, that uh, 
uh, that, that Passover night with the disciples. Verse 25, after the same manner, also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. So Jesus says you do this in remembrance of me. You do this as a memorial of me. You do this to remember my body that was broken. You do this to remember my blood that was shed for you. And that unleavened bread that we use and that fruit of the vine that we use, it is symbolic of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. Luke chapter number 22 makes this clear. Luke 22 verses 19 and 20 Again, going back to uh, this last Passover, the institution of the Lord's Supper, with the disciples, Judas has already been dismissed. Verse 19 says, And he took bread, and gave thanks, and brake it, and gave unto them, saying, This is my body which is given for you, this do in remembrance of me. Likewise also the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood which is shed for you. All right, so obviously Jesus wasn't referring to his literal body and blood. All right, Jesus was seated there with his disciples. All right, and again, he said, this is my body. He took the bread, said, this is my body, which is given for you. All right, it was, it was, it was a symbolic reference. It represented his body. The, the fruit of the vine represented his blood. All right, but it was not literal. It was symbolic. Secondly, the Lord's Supper causes us uh, to, to look outwardly, to look around, and to be reminded that we are part of a greater family. We are part of an eternal family. We are part of the family of God as believers in Jesus Christ. And it reminds us of our future, of our, of our faith that is a mutual faith, and also of our mutual fellowship with one another that is founded, uh, that faith that is founded in Christ. It is also a forward look. It causes us to look forward to the return of Jesus. First Corinthians 11. Uh, Jesus makes it very clear, 1 Corinthians 11, verses 26, the Bible says, For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. All right, so again, partake of the Lord's Supper. And as you partake of the Lord's Supper, what are you doing? You're showing the Lord's death. You're, you're uh, again, having this memorial feast. You're remembering Christ. Until when? Until he comes again. And Jesus is coming again. Jesus is coming again, and we look forward to that day. But until he returns, we are called to partake of the Lord's Supper as a church. And the number four, it causes us to look within. It causes us to look within. Verses 28 uh, down to verse number 31. It says, But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily... Uh, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. Notice verse 31 says, For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. All right? Again, if we would take the time to examine ourselves and to judge ourselves, you know, to deal with sin in our life, the Bible says, again, we shall not be judged. Right, the chastening hand of God in the believer's life, again, will not come into our life like it did in the life of the Corinthian believers. If we will deal with sin in our life, if we will keep short accounts with God, again, if we will confess our sin to the Lord, if we will forsake our sin before the Lord. So again, that's a lot. Again, I know that that's a lot. A lot of different directions we could go. 
Maybe there's other questions you have. Um, maybe some of that you've never heard before. I don't know. Uh, again, I've, again, if, if so, again, if you have other questions, I'd like to clarify uh, things for you. But here's let me, let me just say a couple of things in conclusion tonight. And the first thing is, number one, again, if you are saved, again, if you say, again, I, I know that I'm a child of God. There was a time in my life when I repented and I believed the gospel of Jesus Christ. I was born again. Uh, I, I received Christ as my Lord and as my Savior. And I, I left my old le- life behind me and I began to follow after Jesus Christ. If you say that that's me, yet you haven't been baptized. Let me ask you, what is hindering you from complete obedience to Jesus Christ? What is hindering you from following Christ in Baptism. Baptism is a wonderful thing. Baptism is a glorious thing. Baptism is something that a believer should be eager to participate in. Again, for many reasons. We looked at those reasons tonight. Why would you not want to say, uh, declare to the world, I am a follower of Jesus Christ. Jesus changed my life. He raised me up spiritually to walk in newness of life. He gave me a new life. And I want to proclaim that to the world. My allegiance is to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me, let me answer a question tonight that may also be on your mind, especially with, with the topic of children um, and baptism. Clearly, obviously, we don't believe in infant baptism. We believe that uh, believers' baptism, all right, infants are not capable of believing on Jesus Christ. Um, so what about a young child? You know, what about a young child who who makes a profession of faith in Jesus Christ? And I know there's many times or many churches will say, well, they made a profession of faith or they you know, prayed a prayer. Or they, you know, asked Jesus to come into their heart or whatever. You know, therefore, let's just let's you know, get into the baptism tonight. Yeah, I, I think there needs to be some caution. And although I believe that baptism is an urgent matter, I believe it's a matter of obedience to Jesus Christ. At the same time, I believe especially with younger children who do make a profession of faith in Christ, and I believe young children can legitimately be saved. If they truly understand the gospel, they can legitimately be saved. At the same time, even with that, again, you, you, you want to be careful. You know, you can get a whole room of children to pray a prayer and tell them they're going to heaven. Right? And that's dangerous, because then you give them a false sense of security. But if a child truly understands the gospel, they truly understand repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, they truly believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you see evidence of that in your life, then again, this is the topic that may come to your mind. What about the topic of baptism? Again, when should a child who makes a profession of faith get baptized? Again, here's the answer. I don't have an age for you. <laughs> I don't have an age because the Bible doesn't give us an age. Again, that's one of those areas where I, you wish that that could have been added in there somewhere, but it's not. All right? The Bible doesn't give us a matter of age because I, I don't believe it's a matter of age. I really believe it's a matter of a couple of things. And I believe, number one, it is a matter of maturity. I believe it is a matter of spiritual maturity. Again, a child is a child. We understand that. All right? But does a child simply want to get baptized because it looks fun? You know, simply because they, they saw Susie get baptized last week and therefore, you know, they want to they want to do the same thing. Right? There has to be a sense of maturity there. Do they do those children understand the serious nature of baptism? So there needs to be a sense of maturity. Number two, there needs to be a, a, a level of understanding. Again, a child may not be able to articulate propitiation, justification, sanctification. All right. All these big theological words. And that's OK. 
right? but is a child able to articulate and truly understand the gospel? Right? Not a shallow, watered-down gospel, but the biblical gospel. Are they able to understand it? And even in their childish way, are they able to articulate the gospel? Don't just ask yes or no questions. Again, ask questions to see if they truly understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. Same with baptism. Again, there needs to be a level of understanding, and there needs to be a level of, of being able to articulate uh, what baptism is all about. Again, if a child believes, well, it looks fun, so I want to get baptized, they're probably not ready for baptism. If a child says, well, I want to get saved, and therefore I want to get baptized, they don't understand what baptism is all about. All right, So these are areas where there needs to be maturity, there needs to be understanding. There also needs to be evidence um, of regeneration within the life of that child, not, not just over a short period, but over even a longer period of time. I, I don't know how long or how short. All right? But do you see evidence in that child's life that they have been saved? All right? there, there is The Bible says, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. We're not looking for perfection, but we're looking for a change of direction. Do you see a change of direction in that child's life? You know, do, do, you see, do you see a, a, a tenderness towards the things of God? Do you see a desire to obey the Lord and follow the Lord? Okay, there needs to be some evidence of regeneration within their life. All right, so again, that, like I said, again, we could go a whole lot of other directions with this. And you know, same with the Lord's Supper, too. Um, I, think there, I think parents need to exercise caution um, with children, especially. You know, again, they need to have a credible profession of faith. And I believe it would be wise for them to be baptized and you know, before partaking of the Lord's table. But again, that's uh, some parents need to wrestle with. You know, parents need to uh, deal with. Again, you would not want to put your child in a position where they're partaking of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. All right, so tonight is a special night because we not only touched on this issue, but uh, now we are going to partake of the Lord's Supper. And again, if you are, number one, a member you know, of this church, uh, then we invite you to partake. If you're a member of a church of like faith and practice, we invite you to partake. And if, or if you're a non-member, but you say I again, I substantially again, I, I agree with uh, the doctrine of this church, with the practice of this church, then we also invite you uh, to partake of the Lord's Supper tonight with us. All right, so let's go ahead. Let's close with a word of prayer, and then we'll sing a song and we'll prepare our hearts for the Lord's table. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you, Lord, and God, we are truly grateful for this opportunity you've given us. And God, I pray, Lord, that you would just uh, make clear, Lord, just a topic that can often be confusing. Uh, Lord, where I'm sure there's many questions and there's a lot of different ideas and opinions about, Father. Uh, Lord, we just want to do what your word says about this issue. And Father God, I pray, Lord, that if there's any believer here tonight who has never followed in believer's baptism, I pray, God, that they would... Uh, Lord, just uh, or that they would seek that out, Father, that they would, uh, Lord, just realize the importance of that, Father, and Lord, just uh, uh, follow you in obedience. And God, I pray, Lord, that as we partake of the Lord's Supper tonight, I pray that we would have hearts that are prepared, that have hearts that are, uh, Lord, just examined and, and ready to partake of the Lord's table. And God, I pray you be honored and glorified, Lord, in this church, and Lord, just, uh, Lord, in the way that we, we strive to worship you, Lord, and and, Lord, just order our church in, in, in a biblical fashion. And, Lord, our, des- our desire is that you would be magnified. Lord, our desire, Lord, is that uh, Christ would be exalted and that your will might be accomplished, Lord, in and through uh, this church. God, we love you. God, we praise you. God, we thank you again, Lord, just for, uh, Lord, your love for us, for your mercy, for your kindness. And we do pray this in Jesus' blessed name.